You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning, East Point Church. How are you guys? Are you awake? You're ready. It's so good to gather with you. It is such a privilege every week that we get to come together as a church family to open up our Bibles and to say, God, speak to us. Change me, right? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we continue in our series called Greater. Greater, right? We see the person of Jesus is greater than sickness. Thank you. Greater than death, greater than anything else that this world has to offer. And so we are focused on that man this morning. And spoiler alert, we're focused on that man all day, every day. That's what it is all about here at East Point Church. And so let me ask you this question as we talk about this man How do you approach Jesus? How do you? approach Jesus. All of us in this room, we have different personalities, right? We have different backgrounds. All of us have different experiences being in a setting like this. Some of you, this is brand new, and you're like, all right, who's this Jesus guy? Some of you here, you've been born in a church pew, right? You've been going to this thing forever. How do you approach Jesus? Each, we each have different backgrounds, upbringings. We have different cultures represented here. Each of us has our own unique set of baggage that affects how we tend to engage with and interact with and approach this man. How do you approach Jesus? And then there's not even just our situations. We've learned over the last several weeks that this man, he's a king. As a matter of fact, he's God's king. We've seen him heal diseases with a touch. We've seen him hush storms with a word. We've seen him command demons. How are we to approach such a person? How do we interact with him? What kind of response is he looking for from us? Friends, I'm asking you, how do you approach Jesus? You see, this morning we're going to see two people Two individuals come to and approach Jesus, and as they do, Jesus is going to show us that all of us, regardless of your background, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your experience, all of us must approach Jesus with one thing. And this one thing is the key to everything. As we respond to his teachings, As we see his identity become clearer and clearer each week, all of us must come to and approach him with one thing. And this one thing, friends, is the key. And so we're going to see the key this morning in three parts, three scenes of our story here. And it begins in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Are you ready for the story? Are you ready for the story? Here we go. Okay, okay, East Point, I see you. Here we go. Starts in verse 21 like this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Scene number one, we see a desperate request. A desperate request. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus. He crossed the sea and he conquered a storm. He landed on the other side of the sea, and we see this man who is plagued by a legion of demons, and so he liberates him. But now they get back in the boat, they cross the sea again, and they're back where they started on the Jewish side of the sea. And there we meet a man, the ru- one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus. And so Jairus, this is This is a leadership position in the synagogue, right? He's in charge of the practical responsibilities, keeping things orderly in the synagogue. That's what a normal day's work is like. But today, he's not at work. He takes a personal day, and he goes to the beach, not to dip his toes in the water, but because Jesus is there teaching the crowds on the beach. And so he comes because he needs Jesus' help. He needs his help. And so he comes, but it's not like a subtle request. You know when you're trying to get somebody's attention who's in the middle of something? It's not subtle. Like he's standing off to the side trying to make eyes with Jesus. Like, okay. He's not being smooth as he just kind of like sends a messenger forward, send him a discreet message. No, this man, he comes himself, interrupts the entire teaching, stands up in front of the crowd as he falls at Jesus' feet. He's making a scene. He falls on his face and he is begging Jesus. What else can we conclude about a man who is doing such a scene other than that he must be desperate, right? This is the posture of a desperate man. This is a man whose need is urgent. He needs something desperately. And sure enough, that's what Mark tells us. It says here, my little daughter is at the point of death. There it is. There it is, friends. Here it is, the desperation of a man who is coming on behalf of his child. And all of us, our hearts break with empathy. What we're seeing here is a little girl who's on death's doorstep. And what we see here is the love of a father. This is the move heaven and hell kind of love that says, I will do whatever it takes for my little girl. How many of you would not even think twice about interrupting the message, breaking through the crowd, falling on your face in front of the teacher if it meant life and death for your child? This man's desperation has brought him literally to the feet of Jesus. Jesus' fame has spread. Everyone in the city and the country, they have heard it. And so this man, after hearing what Jesus has done for others, he believes that if Jesus even just lay a hand on his daughter, she will be made well. Jesus, if we go now, I heard what you've done for them. If we go now, if we can get there in time, I believe that what you have done for them, you can do for her. Let's go. His desperation has brought him to the feet of Jesus. And friends, that's what it be like sometimes in life. 
We come to the end of ourselves. We've exhausted our options. We are in our desperate need. And so we come looking for the one who is greater than anything that this world has to offer. And it's often our need that brings us to the feet of Jesus. And so this man, he comes for a very specific need. But I'm telling you, by the end of this story, you'll see, friends, he's going to receive something even greater than what he had hoped for. And so he's on his face. Jesus, come with me. And what does Jesus do? He went with him. Just like that. Think about it, friends. He leaves the crowd. He cuts short the message. Class is over. He walks away from all of these people who need him to go with the hurting man back to his home. Friends, what a statement. The heart of the shepherd hurts with his people. And so he goes with him. Are you hurting this morning? Is anyone here feeling desperate? Are you in a season of life where existence itself is pain? Friend, listen to me. Jesus cares. He cares for you. He doesn't always give us the answers, but what he always does give us is himself. This is the gospel that Jesus has come. God has come in the flesh. He has moved near to us on earth. And whatever painful cup of life, whatever bitter cup life has served you, he has come and he has picked it up and he has drunk from the same bitter cup of pain. He empathizes. He knows. He gets it. He's tasted it. And when we come at his feet and we tell him about it, he doesn't roll his eyes at you. You again? Didn't I help you last week? He doesn't embarrass us for the tears that we're, you know, lying in on our faces. No, he gives us himself. He comes with you. He's with you. And so this man, he has come for his daughter. But on the way, Jesus is going to do something for him. Or better yet, he's going to do something in him. This man has come for a specific need, but by the time our story is done, he's going to realize that Jesus came for his soul. And so without even realizing it, as this man is lying at the feet of Jesus, he has just stepped up to the brink of a lesson. He is on the cusp of a lesson that Jesus is going to teach him that will change the rest of his life. He has no idea, but the story continues. Look at the next verse. And so a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, 
your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Scene number two, we see a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. And so Jairus, he has successfully appealed to Jesus. They break for his home right away because time is of the essence. This is an urgent request. And so they're moving toward his house, but this crowd starts to follow him. They're like, well, let's move. Where he's moving, we're moving. And so the crowd starts to follow him. And in this crowd, hidden among the mob of people, we find a woman a woman who has a severe menstruating disease. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And Mark makes it very clear that she has suffered just as much as all of you think she might, and then some. He says here, yes, she has suffered much under the care of many physicians. Not suffering silently. She has gone to the best methods and the best medicines that this world could offer. She has suffered much under many physicians. And how much did all of those doctor bills add up to? She spent all that she had. Much suffering, many doctors, all her money, and all of that for what? She didn't get any better. As a matter of fact, she grew worse. She has sought relief. She has sought healing. She has sought the best that this, that this world could offer. And the only discouraging outcome, the only repeated, de defeated answer that she gets is, you're actually getting worse. This reminds me of the man with the legion of demons. And the best methods that mankind had to offer to constrain him were useless. She's at the end of her resources. She's at the end of her options. She's not getting any better. Her situation is hopeless. She's hopeless. It's hard to imagine this being any worse. But there's more. You see, if you were to understand Jewish culture in this day, you would be familiar with the cleanliness laws in Leviticus 15. And so according to these priestly laws here, she's supposed to be in quarantine until this menstruating disease has passed. There's not just physical pain. Friends, you have to understand, there's a social component going on here. This condition has kept her social distancing. She is unfit for being around others. She is not supposed to be being in and out and about, interacting with society. And she's been in this state for 12 years. How'd your quarantine go? 12 years interacting and coming in contact with other people is forbidden. Not only is she isolated, but the law says that if she were to come in contact with anyone else, if anybody else were to rub shoulders with her, that they would all now become unclean and unfit for being around. See, this disease, this is not only physically devastating, this is humiliating. This is isolating. This is a hopeless situation. This is the kind of situation where she's probably at the point where she's experienced disappointment so much so, right? She's already experienced enough of those times where she goes to the doctor's office and she goes, this one is promising. Hey, she posts on Facebook, guys, I think this is the one. I think I have an answer, only to be told, no, it's actually worse. 
She's at the point where hope itself hurts. Have you been there? She won't even allow her hopes to get up again because she knows she can't handle another emotional letdown. Have you been there, friends? It's the hope that kills. And yet, what are you to do when hope himself walks into the room? What else can she do when hope himself is passing through the neighborhood and so she lets it up one more time and she allows herself to believe that, could this be it? And so she had heard the reports. The same news that Jairus heard about the miracles for others this woman has heard. And she believes them. She believes that what they say about him is true. She believes that what other people have experienced at the hand of Jesus, that possibly she too could experience that. And we know that she believes because she ventures out of her house. She leaves and breaks her quarantine. She comes off of her sickbed and she enters into a crowd knowing full well the law and the potential consequences of her actions. She's heard the report, and she goes. And again, she's not Mrs. Smooth here. She doesn't just stand in the back of the crowd. Maybe I can just see him, get a little blessing from the distance. She puts on a cloak, and she's incognito, and she starts worming her way through the crowd, jostling everybody, touching everyone. She goes through the crowd, and she, she, she comes. She says, if I can just get close enough, if I can just, like a Navy steel, just in and out before anybody realizes, if I can just touch his garments, then I will be made well. The same exact phrase we just heard a moment ago with the daughter. If I just, if I could touch him, and so she does the very thing that is forbidden to her, given her condition. What is she doing? Look at these verbs. She heard, she came, and she touched. She heard, she heard the news about Jesus, and so she came and she touched. Friends, this right here, this is evidence of faith. This right here, this is the visible manifestation. This is what we can see of an invisible reality called faith. This is not like a vague, you know, I believe Jesus exists. Yeah, i got to believe that. This is not a faith that says, you know, I go to synagogue once a week, hang out with my homies, and, you know, go back to my normal life. She believes so much so. She believes to the extent that she comes to him with her problem. She believes the report about this man is so true that she says, I believe he can do for me what he's done for other people. We are seeing before our very eyes. This is faith. Exhibit A. This is faith. Her faith expresses itself in action. Faith always results in movement toward Jesus. She has faith. And so despite her condition, despite the consequences that she could face for breaking the law, she goes out to him and she touches him. She touches the teacher. Just the little, you know, the Jewish tassels that hang from the teacher's cloak and she touches it. And it says here, immediately the flow of blood dried up. 
in an instant, 12 years of pain, 12 years of prodding, 12 years of uncomfortable physician visits, 12 years of not having any answers, and boom, in a moment, Jesus heals her body. In a moment, she realizes that Jesus is greater than sickness, and he's greater than anything that this world has to offer. Immediately. Now, if you remember the law that we just talked about in Leviticus, what happens now? An unclean person, she just touched Jesus. So according to the law, what is Jesus now? Unclean. And yet, friends, what we realize here is that Jesus is not contaminated by our impurity. He cleanses it. How many of us in our life have said, I can't come to Jesus. I can't, I can't go in that place. I can't. I'm too dirty. I'm too messy. I'm too unclean. Yo, you don't even know the half of it. I'm too dysfunctional. I'm too messed up. I can't come in contact with that. That's for other people who have it put more together who are a little bit more religious. And yet we see here, friends, that when Jesus comes in contact with unclean, sick, leprous, dysfunctional people, it's not him who's changed. It's us. We don't contaminate God. He cleanses us. And that's what happened to her. Immediately. Unclean to clean. Broken to whole. Sick to healthy. Isolated to reintegrated. Lost, restored, and redeemed. And Jesus knows that something has just happened. Jesus felt it. Look what it says here. It says, he perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. I'm not sure what that feels like, right? Like, I just, like my, my imagination is too like, over, overactive to, like, to, to be on task here. But it, there, somehow, it's not a spidey sense. It's a, it's a faith sense. Like Jesus, he, he just knows. Again, I don't know what that looks like, but he knows that someone has just touched him. Not physically. No, someone has just touched him in faith. Someone has just connected with the Son of God with belief. And there's something about Jesus that he senses Someone believes. Someone has just heard, come, and touched me in faith. And so he turns around in the crowd here. He turns around in the crowd and he says, hey, who touched me? Who touched me? Who, ju who just touched my garment? Who was that? Who did that? But this crowd is thick, right? And the disciples are like, yo, Jesus. Like, Bro, like, everybody's touching you. Come on, man. Are you grouchy? You need a snack or something? You need a Snickers? Like, come on, we're all in here. We're rubbing shoulders. Like, come on, Jesus. They don't get it. They think he's talking just like, who touched me? And he's like, no, no, no. Someone has just reached out to me in faith. Who touched me? But friends, you got to put yourself in the scene. Whenever you read the Bible, picture it happening. He's not pondering this in his head as he continues to walk. Who just touched me? No. He stops the caravan. He halts the crowd. He hushes the people. He goes, hey, shh, shh, shh. hey, who just touched me? And how do you think the woman who has just tried to slip in here quietly, in and out, how do you think she's feeling? You see, the disciples don't get what he's talking about, but the woman knows exactly what he's talking about because she knows what just happened in her. 
She wanted to slip in and out of the crowd unnoticed, don't even make a scene, I can avoid the consequences, but now Jesus pauses the caravan, hushes the crowd, and he says, who touched my garment? What would you do? Don't lie to me now, what would you do? How many of you are like, I'm just slipping in and out, right? Dude, I'm not going to lie. I might be like, it was him. I saw him. It was just, get him, Jesus. You know, like, what do you do? You're like, you just play dumb? I don't even know what he's talking about. You know, whatever. What would you do? But look what she did. And as we look at her actions, friends, realize you are looking at another sign of faith. What she does is more evidence of her belief. She truly believes that Jesus is who he said he is. And so what does she do? She comes forward in front of the crowd who knows that she's not supposed to be there. And she falls at his feet. Everybody's fallen at his feet lately, huh? Just everybody on their face before Jesus. Maybe Mark wants us to pick up on that. And she falls on her face and she tells him the whole truth. Is there fear and trembling because she knows what could happen to her? Absolutely. But she believes in him so much that she throws herself all upon his mercy. And she says, I'm coming clean. And she tells him everything. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's what's been going on with me. She confesses it all. And for all of my poker playing friends, this is what we call all in. The point of no return. There is no plan B. She has just put in all of her chips and she is betting on the man before her because if he's not who she thought he was, then she's sunk. If he's not as merciful as she believed he was, she's doomed. She says, all of my faith is in you and your mercy. And so she comes and she tells him the whole truth. Friends, that moment right there Have you ever been in that moment? One of the surest signs of faith. Look around. One of the the most clear evidences of faith, and we see this all the time, even in our congregation. One of the surest signs of faith is a willingness to come to Jesus and to humbly tell him everything. There's a point in our lives where we come and we so believe that he will respond to us the way that he said he would. We believe it so much so that we tell him everything and we have nothing to hide. I will tell you my sin. I will tell you my baggage. I will tell you my background. I'll tell you all the things I did. I'll tell you all the things I should have done and didn't do. We come clean before Jesus because we believe, we dare to believe that he will receive us and he will treat us the way that he promised he would. She believes that when she comes clean, he will treat her as a child of God. Do you believe that? Friends, have you had that moment? Have you come to that place in your life where you've stopped trying to maintain, well, you know, I'm pretty good, and you stop trying to maintain the appearances, and you stop caring what people think about you, and you come before Jesus on your face, and you say, here is the whole truth, here's who I am. And in that moment of coming clean, that's when you see who he is. So she comes clean before him. 
And I can just imagine, right, the moments, right? Like her face is probably just like, she's having an out-of-body experience, right? She's like watching herself confess her entire deal to Jesus. And she's like, what is happening right now? And it's like time itself is standing still. And she finishes her last word. And how long do you think that gap was between her last word and Jesus' response? Must have felt like an eternity. She can hear her pulse in her ears. She has just put herself out there. She told him the whole truth, and the first word out of his mouth, underline this in your Bibles, the first word out of his mouth, daughter, daughter. We've just seen Jairus' crazy love for his daughter. We just saw a man who was willing to do whatever it took to advocate for and to express love to help his daughter. And here in this moment, when God in the flesh speaks daughter, we're reminded that she is equally loved, equally cared for, equally advocated for by her father in heaven. Daughter. And in one word, he restores her. In one word, this woman who felt lonely, isolated, and hopeless is overwhelmed with love and care and infused with meaning. In one word, she who was orphaned is now his family. Daughter. And how did she become his daughter? How is she experiencing this whole transformation, body, soul, and spirit? How is she coming to this place of life change? Well, he says to her, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Friends, sometimes we talk about faith like it's magic. You just got to believe. Just If you can just get all the doubts out of your mind, the power of belief will make whatever you wish for come true. I just believe. I have faith that my car will run. Bro, you haven't changed the oil in 12 years. I just believe that I'll pass my exam. I just believe that I'll get this job. I just believe. It's just the power of belief. Whatever outcome you want, just just believe, friends. Have hashtag faith. We talk about faith like it's a bank account or like a power bar. It's like faithing up. And once I hit that critical mark, once I have the minimum requirements of faith, then bam, whatever you wished for, whatever outcome you were hoping for, then it'll happen because you have the required amount of faith. Just believe. Jesus is here, and he says false, and he's showing us that in the Bible, it's not about the amount of faith. Friends, he says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's not about the amount of your faith. It's not about if you can just have, have the power of belief in a random outcome. It's not about the amount of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Your faith has made you well because it has brought you to the one who can save you. Your faith has saved you because you have put it in the right person. Biblical faith is faith in Jesus. 
Faith is not positive, wishful thinking for a certain outcome. Faith says that even when things don't happen according to the outcome that I wanted, I still trust that he is who he said he is and that he can do what he said he can do. Faith says regardless of what I hoped for, I believe that Jesus will never default on the promises that he made to those of us who follow him. Not wishful thinking, not the power of positivity, not just the amount of belief. It is a way that we lean the entire weight of our life and we trust on him. It is, my poker playing friends, it is the way that we go all in and we say, hey, I trust him. And if he's wrong, there's no backup plan because I'm all in. Faith is what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, man, if we're wrong about this, then we should be pitied more than everybody because we have staked our lives on this. We believe that there is life after death. We believe that Jesus, who said he would come back for us, will not fail us. We believe that he who said that we will have eternal life, never to taste death again, but will be with him for all of eternity, we believe him. Point blank, we believe him. That's why sometimes we refer to followers of Jesus as believers, not believers, believers. We trust him. We're all in. And I just think it's so beautiful here that Jesus, <laughs> he stopped the crowd. He could have just let her go, right? A little miracle on the go, give her a little wink and the nod, like, I know, I see you. All right, keep going. He stops the crowd and he turns around. He seeks her and draws her out because he wants her to know that he came for more than miracles. He came for more than just to restore her body for a few more years until she died. He came for her soul. He came to give her more than a miracle on the go. He wants her to know that by faith, she is now a beloved daughter of God, at peace with her maker, a member of his family. And so she has left with so much more than a miracle. She's left with a blessing from Jesus. She's his. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. But there's one more scene. We're not done yet. Look at the last few verses here. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Scene number three, a startling resurrection. A startling resurrection. 
This is a beautiful moment with the woman, right? And all of you guys are here, and you got the ugly cry, and you're scared. You're like, oh, this is so beautiful. Look what he did to her. Oh, my gosh. You know? But don't forget about my boy Jairus. And so the camera, it pans over, and we see Jairus standing there. And what is he doing? He's checking his phone. Any messages yet? Like, Jesus, this is beautiful, but don't you remember my desperate request? Jesus, this is good, but like, hey, time is of the essence here. We're, we're on a mission. We got to get there. My need is extremely time sensitive. And as he's sitting there, heart racing, we got to go, he sees this delay happen right before his eyes. And then the timing couldn't be more unfortunate. It ends there. He says, bless you, my daughter. He sends her away. And Jairus is like, great, let's go. And he turns. And as he turns, he sees some people from his household. See some from friends back from the house. And they say to him, hey, bud, your daughter is dead. Jesus is too late. Waiting has cost you everything. There is nothing Jesus can do now. We've already missed our window of opportunity. And so stop troubling the teacher. Leave him alone. He can't help you anymore. It's done. What do you do when Jesus' sense of urgency doesn't match your own? What do you do when God is waiting to act, and you can easily give him a million reasons why we should not be waiting, but acting immediately. Friends, what do you do in your life when Jesus seems to be late? And so Jesus, he overhears this conversation, and, it's, and it's, he's sandwiched in the middle. Jesus is here on one side with the woman. He turns. He has the guys from his household, and they're saying in one ear, leave him alone. It's over. It's done. There's nothing more we can do. And on the other side, as Jesus overhears that conversation, Jesus says to them, hey, Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. And as we hear this word believe, light bulb, we get what just happened. This is why Mark put the story of the woman right in the middle of this story. Mark doesn't have ADD, right? You're just like, wait a minute, you were doing the miracle of Jairus, and then you got distracted. Like, shouldn't you let Jairus have his story? And then you, did you get distracted? No. He pauses the story of Jairus. He puts the woman intentionally in that spot of the story, not as a random interruption, but because she is the key to the whole story. Right in the middle of Jairus' story, this woman comes as an illustration of the lesson that Jesus wants to teach Jairus, of the lesson that Jesus wants to teach you and me. You see, Jairus' story was suspended because just like a sandwich, the point is in the middle, right? For my chicken bacon ranch lovers out there, okay? Just like a sandwich, the point is in the middle. In the same way in this story, just like a sandwich, the point is in the middle. This woman is an illustration that we are to come to Jesus in faith. 
right in the middle of Jairus coming to Jesus with this desperate need. He sees her come to Jesus in complete faith. He just saw eyewitness. He saw first row, you know, sitting there. He saw her come to Jesus in faith, even in her hopeless situation. And it's as if Jesus turns from her and turns to Jairus, and he says, now how about you, Jairus? Do you believe? He sees the whole thing with the woman develop, and it's as if he's saying to Jairus, yep, she believes. How about you? Do you believe when it seems to be hopeless? How about you, East Point? Do you believe when the odds seem stacked, when others are just whispering in your ear, leave him alone, he can't help you. When your circumstances seem to point to the contrary, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Do you believe that he can do what he said he does? And so Jairus is here, and don't bother him. And Jesus is like, hey, bro, don't fear. Just believe. Follow me. And so they keep walking, and he arrives at the house, right? He pulls Peter, James, and John away from the crowd. He goes toward the house, and he's, in, he's confronted with this commotion. He sees a scene, just like you would expect. There is lots of weeping and wailing. You see, in this day, uh, in, in this culture, if you were preparing for your funeral, it was more than just flowers and a casket and a venue. They would also hire a, a troop, almost a group, of mourners, professional mourners that would play dirge music, that would weep loudly, that would wail. All of that was to help create an atmosphere of lamentation, okay? Even the poorest citizens in Israel, they would at least have a flute player and a singer. They would never go less. This is culture. And so he walks in here, and this professional group of mourners, they're there. The mourning has begun, and so not only are his friends saying it's too late, but the entire scene is a reminder that they're too late. These circumstances, the situations of the room, seem to defy the idea that any good can come from trusting in Jesus. And so the circumstances, his friends, they're saying one thing, but here we have again in the other ear as Jesus says, hey, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. What? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. What does he mean? What does he mean by that? No, she's, she's, she's dead. No, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And the response of this crowd is so vivid, right? Mark puts it in such a, in such a cool way in his narrative. The people who were paid to mourn and weep and wail, they're now laughing, it's a startling description, right? Because just like Jairus just had an example of faith, he's now confronted with examples of the opposite. He now sees how not to respond to Jesus. They're laughing in disbelief, in derision, the opposite of faith. But Jairus, don't forget, even as they laugh, Jairus, don't forget what I've taught you. I know what this looks like, but we are to come to Jesus in faith. Hold the faith, Jairus. And so Jesus comes and he puts all of those people outside. Shoo, get out. Hey, gets them out of the house, right? Almost as if to say, you don't have faith, you don't get to see me work, right? Puts them out of the house and he has this intimate moment now. Just his three disciples, mom and dad, and they walk into the room 
where this little girl's body is laying on her bed. And he closes the door. And I can't even imagine what mom and dad feel right now as they see their daughter, her body on the bed. And Jesus comes and he kneels down. And he says here, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Don't do this, Jesus. And I can just imagine mom, eyes closed, tears streaming, going, hey, he probably means well, but maybe he's in disbelief. Maybe Jesus is, is in denial right now. Just please don't do this. Just let us grieve in peace. And he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, immediately it says, the girl got up and began walking. Immediately, this little girl who was gone, she had passed from this life, eyes open, gets up, and I love what it says, she starts walking. Not like, like when I'm sick, I'm, I'm a bad sick person, all right? Like I'm sick, and I'm like, oh, babe, oh, and I'm getting out of bed all ginger. She's like, you were sick eight days ago. I'm like, I know, it still hurts. I'm just a baby when it comes to being sick, right? This little girl, it's not like a slow rejuvenation. It's not like the power's at work. She's like, up, oh, what was I doing? Right? And how old was she? How old was she? How long was the woman in quarantine? Twelve. Another little reminder is connecting these stories, reminding us that in both situations, we are to come to Jesus in faith. You see, Jairus, he hoped that Jesus could heal his sick daughter. But now he knows that Jesus can raise his dead daughter. Jairus knew that if they hurried, Jesus could do something. But now Jairus trusts that Jesus' timing is always perfect. Jairus knew that Jesus could help her avoid death. But now Jairus knows that Jesus can conquer and defeat death. We are to come to Jesus in faith. And friends, as we see this little girl rise up from her bed, this 12-year-old, I love what Jesus says, get her something to eat. How many of you have 12-year-olds, right? Story of your life, get them something to eat, right? He's like, she's, she's alive, this is real. This is not a metaphor, feed the girl, she's hungry. And as we see this little girl jump off her bed, here we are reminded of the gospel that all of us were born into spiritual death, friends. All of us. It doesn't matter how long you've been here, how short you've been here, wherever you are in life, whatever your upbringing, we were all born as dead as this little girl, spiritually unable to work our way back into relationship with God. There is nothing inside of us that can say, hey, Jesus, uh, I deserve to be your son and daughter because uh, look at me. No, we're dead. Nothing going for us. But just like that little girl who was dead and is now alive walking, the Bible tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Those of us who were spiritually dead, he says, Little girl, arise. Young man, arise. Are you a spiritually alive friend? 
Have you come to the point in your life where you have called out to Jesus to say, make me live, give me faith, regenerate my heart, bring me into your family so that I, who once was dead, am now alive? Have you come to that point yet? Put your faith in Jesus and he'll do it. But let me be clear, this is not just a a spiritual allegory for death, like what we just saw happen, this is not just a metaphor for the gospel. No, we believe here at East Point Church, Jesus is literally greater than physical death, all right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, decades after this instance, listen to how believers still talk about death. He says here in chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We still refer to believers who have passed away as those who are asleep in the Lord because we know that he's greater than death. We know that our Savior, that to him, death is as easily overcome as stirring up your child from sleep. And so one day, for those of us who have died in Christ, in faith, he will come to us and he will wake us up and say, hey, arise. Hey, death is not the end. Hey, Wake up, and friends, we will open our eyes in the sunshine of eternity, never to die again, always alive with Jesus, because he is greater than death. Do you fear death? Do you fear your diagnosis? Do you fear the direction of our country? Do you fear your circumstances? Are you fearing that this may be just a little bit too late, too little too late? Are you worried by all the hopelessness and pessimism around you? Do not fear, only believe, for we are to come to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, God. We thank you for the stories of scripture. We thank you for your word spoken to us, written for us, that reveals the kind of God that you are. So thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us today, not only about you, but about ourselves, that we are dead, but you're a living God, and you're making startling resurrections all the time. Father, would you give us faith? We believe, Lord. I believe in you. I believe that you are who you said you are, but would you help my unbelief? Help us, Lord, to trust you with the weight of our lives. Help us, Lord, in those areas where we're not all in, where we still hold back to say, I I need to rely on myself for this. Rid us of our self-reliance and lead us to faith. We love you so much. We believe you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.